Uh, as I was planning, studying the message, what we're talking about today, I, I realized that I am, I am very weary today. I am weary because of the constant flood of bad news in the world. I'm weary because of personal spiritual battles I've been facing. I'm weary because of the suffering I see in the world. I'm weary from seeing people I know and love destroy their lives in sin. I'm weary seeing people suffer because people they know and love are destroying their lives through sin. I, I, just, I just feel weary. And chances are I'm not the only one who feels weary. All of the bad news, all of the spiritual battles, all of the suffering, all of the sin and all of the, the bad things in the world, they, they point us to what should be an irrefutable, unarguable truth. The world is broken. The brokenness of the world is seen in suffering, in droughts, in tornadoes, in wars, in injustice, sickness, disease, sin, destroyed lives and death. And, and no telling how many other Terrible things go on that we don't know about because it doesn't make the news and so it doesn't reach into our world. Now, skeptics will point to these sort of issues and they will say, this is proof that God doesn't exist. How could an all-knowing and an all-good God exist where there is such terrible things happening in the world? The reality is suffering and droughts and tornadoes and wars and injustices, sickness, disease, sin, destroyed lives and death was not a part of God's original plan of creation. Genesis 1, 31, we find out God looked at all that he had created and he saw that it was good. In fact, it says he was very good. And yet as we look at the world today, we see the world is not very good. So what happened? How did the world go from being very good in the eyes of its creator to being what it is we see in the world today that is not very good? What has brought such drastic changes in God's good creation? Well, the answer, according to God's word, is sin. When sin entered the world, it brought with it all manner of suffering, including the droughts, the tornadoes, the wars, the injustices, the sickness, disease, sin destroyed lives and death and every other bad thing in the world. Every bad thing we see on the news is a result of sin and the fall. Every ounce of suffering we see in the world is a response is because of sin and the fall. Every ounce of suffering we have experienced in our lives is a result of sin and the fall, everything bad and not very good in our world is the result of humanity's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. All of creation has been tainted and affected by sin. Nothing in all the world is exactly as it ought to be. While creation declares the glory of God through its beauty and its complexity, it does so imperfectly because even creation has been marred by sin. All the beauty of God's creation is in some way broken and marred because of sin. This leaves all of creation, the Bible says, groaning under the weight of sin. It has been subjected to futility and so it groans for the day of redemption. But it's not just the creation that groans for the day of redemption. We too groan. Under the way, under the day of redemption. We groan for the day when there will be no suffering. We groan for the day when there will be no sin-destroyed lives. We groan for the day when there will be no death. We groan for the day where there will be no natural disasters or random acts of violence. We groan for the day of redemption. And the day we groan for, the day creation groans for, 
It is a day that is coming. It is the day when Jesus will return and restore all that's been broken by sin. So what will this restored world be like? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So Roman, uh, Revelation 21, hope you have it. Stand on the reading of God's Word. It's on page 961 if you have a pew Bible. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. And I'm going to stumble my way through some of those gem names. And if I'm wrong and you know it's right, you just go along with me and say amen like I said it right. Revelation 21 and 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among people. He will dwell among them and shall be with his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The one who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very valuable stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and the gates with 12 angels and the names written on the gates, which were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod. Twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also angelic measurements. The The material of the wall was jasper and the city was like pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second was sapphire. The third was chalcedony. The fourth emerald. The fifth sardonyx. The sixth sardis. The seventh chrysolite. The eighth beryl. The ninth topaz. The tenth chrysoprase. The eleventh jacinth. The twelfth amethyst. And twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it for the Lord, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun 
nor of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the God, the glory of God illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring in, they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Title of the message this morning is the day of redemption. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the hope we have of the day that's coming. Father, this life is so often good. I mean, there is so much good we experience, so much beauty we see, so many wonderful things you do for us in this life. And yet in the midst of it all, Father, there is such tragedy, such hardship, such hurt, such such aching and suffering we see and experience. And Father, it is, it, it is difficult at times to reconcile the hope of, a, of an awesome and a great and a good God with the, the terrible suffering of this life. But Lord, we know, we know you are good and we know you are loving and we know you've given us our choices. And so often we... We make our choices that make things hard for us. Father, we ask you to forgive us for that. Guide us, Lord, to make the kind of choices that you would want us to make that would bring glory and honor to you and, and would help us, Father, avoid some of the snares of the enemy that would he would use to, to destroy us and others in our lives. Father, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the good, there is a hope we have of a day that's coming. A day, Lord, when there will... There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be none of the things that make this life bad. None of that will be there. I can't, I can't wrap my mind around how good that day will be. Father, I know only that my heart longs for it. I, I know only, Lord, that, that many I love are there. Kind of experiencing it and waiting on us to come. So in some ways, Lord, we we pray like the Apostle John prayed at the end of the book. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord. Come quickly and bring new Jerusalem. Come quickly and make an end to sin and death and suffering. Come quickly, Lord. But Lord, at the same time, there's the reality that many around us don't know you. Many around us are lost. Many around us will not enjoy this day. In this place. So. While we want you to come. We also want you to. To give us an urgency. About the mission of making disciples of all nations. Father we want you to. To use us to work through. Us as individuals and us as a church. To reach our loved ones. To reach Guyman. Goodwill and Hooker. and Texhoma. To reach them for Jesus. To see souls saved and lives changed. To see people born again and set free from the enemy's snares. To, to know Jesus and to live for Him and to make Him known. And, and to serve you in such a way, Lord, that you raise up people from our church who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Who would go to the hard to reach places and the hard to reach people. And tell them the good news of great joy that there is a Savior who came. Father, while we look for this day, let us not be 
lazy about it. Let us be diligent to redeem each and every day for your word tells us that every day we have is a gift of grace and mercy to give other people an opportunity to repent and to give us an opportunity to tell people about Christ. Let us redeem the time. Let us use it wisely as we look at your word today. Father, let it encourage our hearts. Let it strengthen us so that as we head out into a, a world where there's going to be bad news awaiting us, a world where there are going to be bad things happening, our hearts would be strong and we would be steadfast in you, knowing that our service for you is never in vain. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Human history, according to God's word, begins in a paradise called the Garden of Eden. Human history ends in a paradise called New Jerusalem. What we read about in Revelation 21 is the completion of the redemption Jesus purchased for us on the cross. One of my commentaries gave a a parallel, showed a contrast between Genesis and Revelation. Genesis 1.1, the heavens and the earth are created. Revelation 21.1, a new heaven and a new earth come down. Genesis 1 and 16, the sun is created. Revelation 21.23, there's no longer any need for the sun. Genesis 1.5, night is established. Genesis 21.25, there's no longer any night. Genesis 1 and 10, the seas are created. Revelation 21 and 1, there's no more sea. Genesis 3 and 1, the devil appears. Revelation 20 and 10, the devil is destroyed. Genesis 3 and 14, the curse is announced. Revelation 21 and 3, there's no more curse. Genesis 3 and 19, death enters history. Revelation 21, 4, there's no more death. Revelation 3, I'm sorry, Genesis 3 and 24, man is driven from paradise. Genesis 22 or 21 and 14, man is restored to paradise. Genesis 3 and 17, sorrow and pain begin. And then Revelation 21 and 4, there's no more tears, no more sorrow, and no more pain. We are living in the in-between time right now. Not only in between Genesis and Revelation, but in between the death and resurrection of Jesus and Revelation. We're in between time. The, the kingdom has been inaugurated. The kingdom is coming. People are being saved. People are being delivered. Suffering is being alleviated through the gospel and the power of God. But it's not yet fully complete. What we're reading about in Revelation 21 is the day of redemption. We in creation are groaning to come to pass. Our key thought for today comes from Revelation 3 and 4, 21, 3 and 4. Heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, tabernacle of God is among the people. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. No longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is kind of a key to what we understand about the day of redemption and what it will be. And so our key thought today so the joys of heaven will erase the pains of earth. Paul says in the book of Romans that the glory to be revealed is so great it cannot be compared to the suffering of this life. It's hard for us to imagine now, but on, on this day we'll understand. 
Paul says to the Corinthians, the suffering of this life of life are light and momentary, but the glory to come is eternal. Again, can be difficult to navigate and understand in this life, but on, on this day we will understand it will have been worth it all. But this does raise a question. What are the joys that we will experience in heaven that will erase all the pains of the earth? Well, first is the joy of eternal perfection. The joy of eternal perfection. I once heard a sermon and the pastor said, hope that is never fulfilled is just a delusion. And the world at large thinks disciples of Jesus are delusional. Because we're looking forward to this day, this perfect place, this future salvation. However, we're not delusional as heaven is a real place. In verse 1, it talks about a, a new heaven and a new earth and it's coming down to the earth. It's coming down. And there is a, a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God in verse 2. Now, these are not symbolic statements. This isn't a, a metaphor for something else. This is a, a real place where Jesus has gone to prepare. And when the time is fulfilled, it will come down. And those who have been redeemed through faith in Jesus will go to be there for all of eternity. And the fact that it is for all of eternity is important also for us to understand. Right in Revelation 21 and 1 it says the, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. This world and everything in it is going to pass away. God's word tells us. Now where the world and everything in it is passing away. Heaven is eternal. Heaven is Forever. It's not for a certain span of life and then you die. It's, it's forever. Now if, if we believe this, if we believe this, shouldn't that shape the way we live our day to day lives? Wouldn't it make sense to live in light of the eternal world Instead of to live in light and live for a temporary world. All of the things we in the world, we, we fight over, we, we hoard, we desire so greatly. It is all going to pass away. It is all going to burn up with a fervent heat. What, what we consider so valuable right now is not going to last. But this place, it will last. Not only is it eternal, it is perfect. It is eternal perfection. In this life we live with much pain and sorrow. But again, pain and sorrow are not a part of God's original plans for humanity. Pain and sorrow, all pain and sorrow, is a result of sin and rebellion against God that started in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they passed on a, a heart of rebellion toward God to, to every human born after them. And so what this means is every city, every town, every village ever established since then has been corrupted by the curse of sin. This is why in the end, every government, every system of government, every political party fails to bring about the, cha the promised changes. I mean, even if they intended to keep their promises, which is doubtful at best, they can't. They can't because they can't fix the problems. The best government can do is mess things up. 
They cannot fix the basic human problem, which is sin in our hearts, corruption in our soul. Only the gospel, only Jesus can do that. But on the day of redemption, on this day, those who are belong to Christ will be eternally freed from any contamination of sin. And they will be in a place where there is no there are no more effects of sin any longer. We see this in verses three and four. God will be among his people. One of the things God desired most, uh, one of the reasons God created people was to dwell with them, to be with them. And we get the picture from the garden that before sin, God dwelled with Adam and Eve in near perfect communion. But their sin broke that relationship, separated them from God. They passed that on to us. But, but we don't we can't we don't have to blame Adam and Eve for the fact that our sin has separated us from God. We have sinned. So it's not that we inherited something and it's not our fault. We, too, have sinned. We have ruptured. Our relationship with God. And, and even in this life, our relationship with God as, as disciples of Jesus is real and it's there, but it's not all it should be. But the day is coming where He will dwell among us, we will dwell with Him, and we will be His people in a way we cannot quite fathom at this point. On this day, God will wipe away every tear. From our eyes, which is an interesting statement considering the next verse, the next words say there's no death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain. All of the the first things have passed away. Another thing sin brought into the world was death. When Adam and Eve sinned, they not only died immediately spiritually, they began to die physically. And they passed that death on to all people. Eventually, our bodies are going to quit. For many of us, we've already experienced some manner of breaking down. Right? We, we can't do what we could do 20 or 40 years ago. Or if we do it, it hurts a lot more now than it did then. This is the, the breaking down and the dying process. And if we live long enough, we will die. Life, as they say, is 100% fatal. However, the day of redemption... Our bodies are changed from natural dying bodies into spiritual immortal bodies. They will never break down. They will never quit working. All of the things that are broken in our bodies that don't work as they should will be fixed. All of those who have gone before us, who died with their bodies broken down from disease or something, their bodies will be fixed. There will be glorified, perfect bodies. For all people who are with Jesus in this place. The perfection is seen in the fact there's no more death. No more mourning. I doubt any of us have gotten through life without the the tremendous pain of loss. The suffering associated with seeing someone we know and love pass from this life. On the day of redemption we will never experience that again. We will be together with the Lord and with them. This is one of the reasons the Apostle Paul says the suffering of this present life cannot be compared with the glory of the next. Personally, and maybe this is me, and I'm going to project my failings onto you. I can't fully comprehend 
anything like this. Because no matter what or how good something here is, it is in some ways always broken. It isn't all it should be. So to imagine a world where everything is exactly the way God intended and the way God wants, and it will be that way forever. I mean, okay, so besides Scott, how many of you are cynical? Besides Scott and me, I'll throw me in there too. And, and when something's really good, you say, wow, things are good. Well, that means something bad's about to happen. Anybody ever have that thought in your minds? Right? In, in heaven, it won't be that thought. Now, of course, why do we have that thought? Because so often things are going along good and then something bad happens. And so we're just waiting on that to happen again. But it won't be like that there. So it's hard to imagine a place perfect. No sin, no sorrow, no mourning, no no nothing bad. But that's the place. That's what we're looking for. That's the joy of the eternal perfection of heaven. Now, likely this is not new information for any of us. But it, it, it is something we should think on often. Because again, if we really believe this, If we really believe this life and everything in it is passing away and the next life is forever and the things that we store up there are eternally significant, wouldn't wouldn't we prioritize our lives differently? I mean, imagine, I should have thought to bring this, but let's say, let's say this, this is, all of this is our life, eternity and everything. And in this part right here is our physical life. And the rest of this is our eternal life in heaven. Now, if that's the case, what makes more sense? Living with a sole focus on this little piece right here or living with a focus on all of this that's going to last so much longer? If we really believed truly believed in a in a way in our minds and in our hearts what, what it says about heaven there. I mean, we would enjoy this life and we would do the stuff of the life, but we would always live it in light of the world to come. We would be, as the Apostle Paul said, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We wouldn't stress over the things of this life because it's going to pass away. And we would focus on laying up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. If we truly, truly believe in the joys of eternal perfection in heaven, it couldn't help but change the way we live day to day here in this passing world. The joys of heaven will erase the pains of earth because in heaven we'll experience the joys of eternal perfection. Secondly, it's the joy of God's presence and God's glory. And I've already kind of got ahead of myself in verse 3 about God dwelling among us. Again, this was, this was what God wanted. This, in fact, if you, if you think about the Bible, the whole story of the Bible, God is the main character. Right? It's not Adam or Abraham or Paul. 
It, it, it's God. God is always the central character. And God is, is really, in all the things that He's doing, He's doing one thing through it all. He is wanting to be with His people. Right? He, he creates a garden. He puts man there. And He comes to be with him. But then man sins and separates that. But then God creates a way for them to, to still have a measure of fellowship with Him. And then God pursues Abraham so that He can create a people so a Redeemer will come. And He sends His people into a, a place where they would suffer and where they would life would be hard, but, but He came to deliver them. And He gave them a place they could build a, a tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, they could come in and they could dwell with God and He would dwell with them, but it wasn't permanent. It was temporary. And then they built a more temporary structure, a temple. And it was also a place where they could come and they could be with God. But it wasn't perfect because the temple was separated and, and people were still sinful and they couldn't go into the very presence of God like He desired. So Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. He came to, to seek us, to be with us, to be God among us, to dwell among us. And then He died on the cross and His death at His death, the temple in the holy place was torn in half. Signifying that there were the way to God was open. And humans could now know God. And then God began to pursue humans through the gospel. Through His Spirit. The book of Acts is about a church going forth. But more than that. It is about God pursuing people through His church. Why did the church go forth? To proclaim there is a God. And He had a Son. And His Son came. And His Son died. And now if you will come to Him, you can know the living God. And so the church of Jesus Christ exists. Not to, to do this stuff, but, but to say God is pursuing you through us. And that's why... Paul says in Corinthians, we plead with people to be reconciled to God. And as we do, it is as though God Himself is speaking through us. God wants to work through you and I to pursue other people who don't yet know Him. How amazing is that? And as much as this is what God is doing, and He has done, He has caught most of us in here, I suspect. All of us, maybe. I don't know. And we know God. And we know Jesus. And we know the Spirit who lives within us. And these times that we can have with God now, this fellowship and relationship we have with Him now, it's real. It, it, is, it is by faith we believe. But there are also experiences that we have where we know He's here. We know He's at work. We know He is answering our prayers. But... Don't we long for more? Don't we long for, for more of God in our lives? More of the Spirit? Paul talks about in Ephesians, being filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, I, I think that's a... I mean, that's a can, would you say you're filled all the time with all the fullness of God? Man, I, I would... I would love to be able to say that, but I know me, and, and I'm not. So there's more. I, I want more. 
I want, I want more of God. I want to, to know Him better. I want to experience Him more. I want more of the Spirit. I want to be more like Jesus. And that, that is because we, we live here and we do all of this by faith. But the day is coming where faith will give way to sight and we will see Jesus in all of His glory. We will see the glory of God. He will dwell among us and He will be so close to us that if we cry, it will be God who comes alongside us to wipe the tears from our eyes. Can you, can you imagine the greatness of this? To fully experience the presence of God in, in ways that right now we can only imagine. But that's the day coming. That is the fulfillment of what God is doing and, and has always been doing, pursuing his people. We, the joy of God's presence, but it's also the joy of God's glory. Right in verses 10 through 20, it describes the city. And, and Scott and I were talking about this a few weeks ago. I don't have a, like a vivid imagination. I mean, I can like if I read a fantasy book or a fiction book, I understand the words and the story and imagine the story. But I don't see a movie in my head where I this is what they look like. I mean, I, I would be a terrible eyewitness at a bank robbery. What do he look like? Oh, is a dude. I mean, how, how tall was he? I don't know. I mean, I'm just I don't have that kind of my mind doesn't work that way. Now, a movie, I can get it from a movie and I can keep it there. Because, you know, that's not difficult. But as far as like a book. I can't read a book and imagine what the people look like or imagine the scenes described. So I, I, I can see this and I know what it means. I mean, I know streets of gold, stones and all that kind of stuff, great big pearls. But I can't I can't visualize in my mind what it would look like. The best I can do is just think it would be it must be amazing. It must be the most amazing thing of all. And I think it, it is going to be the most amazing thing of all. Now, some say that the description here is figurative and not literal. They say the sight of heaven was too great, too glorious for the Apostle John's tiny human mind to comprehend. And so when he went to write about it, he did the best he could to explain what it was like. But honestly, whether the description is figurative, whether it's literal, isn't the point. Look, look at verse 11. Having the glory of God. There's the point. There's the point of what the city looks like. The glory of God. Heaven is described the way it's described to put us in awe of the greatness and the glory of of God. What we are given in these verses is the picture of the city of the great king. In the ancient world, the most splendid city in a kingdom was the city the king lived in. And it was done this way on purpose. It was done this way so that when important dignitaries from other nations would come, they would see the glory of the king's city and they would be in awe of the king. And they would do one of two things. They would be in awe of the king and they would want to be friends with the king. Or they would be in awe of the king and they would think, 
attacking this guy would be a foolish thing for us to do. He is any king that could build this is far beyond us. I say we let this one go. Think about the story of how Solomon's kingdom is described in Second Chronicles. It talks about thrones being made of ivory and then overlaid with pure gold. Can, can you imagine the opulence? You make it out of ivory and then you overlay it in gold just because you can. Such a, a wealthy kingdom that silver was so common it had no value. It talks about the great riches Solomon accumulated. Animals from all over the world. And the description of Solomon's kingdom was done twofold. One is to show God had kept his promise to Solomon and had made him great. But the other part was it was built in this way so that when people came to Jerusalem and they saw the city of the great king, they would be in awe of the king of that city. And they would want to be his friends. Or they would think it would be foolish for us to try and attack a king who is this splendid and this great. Jerusalem was built the way it was under Solomon to put those who visited the capital city in awe of his majesty. Similarly, the description of the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and the walls of precious stones are meant to remind us of the greatness of God. The gold, the pearl, the precious stones, they're all incidental. They're not the point. The point is God is great. The point is God is glorious. The point is God is so great and so glorious. The things that have ultimate value here are nothing more than bricks and pavement for his city. The point is God's glory is far beyond anything this life and this world can create. The greatness and the glory of heaven, the way it's described, it's meant to reveal to us the greatness and the glory of the God of the city. It's sort of like the parables of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. Remember the stories. Man finds a treasure in a field. And so with joy, he covers it up and he goes and sells everything he has so that he can buy the field. And in the end, he has he's lost all of his stuff, but he has the field and the treasure. It's like a pearl merchant who travels the world and finds one pearl of such great price. He immediately sells everything he has so he can acquire the pearl. And in the end, all he has is the pearl. But the point is the treasure acquired, the pearl found is worth more than everything they had. And it was a good trade. They did it with joy. God is worth more than anything this world offers us. The Apostle Paul knew this. And that's why he willingly suffered the loss of all things and counted them but dung. That he might know Jesus. Just knowing Jesus was so great that everything that had been valuable to him before was no more than dung in his sight. The glory of the city. Remind us of the greater glory of God. And it inspires us to be willing to lose or give up anything and everything for the sake of the king of the city. The joys of heaven will erase the pains of earth because in heaven we'll experience the joys and the presence. The joys of God's presence and glory. And then thirdly and finally, 
the joy of worshiping Jesus. Verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb of the temple. So rather than having a particular place where people would gather to worship, the whole place is a temple to worship because God is there. God is present. Jesus is present. The result will be continual worship and continual communion with Jesus. No matter what the citizens of this kingdom are doing, they're going to be doing it for the glory of God. They're going to be doing it as an act of worship to God. In verse 24, the nations walk by its light and the kings of earth will bring their glory. They're, they're bringing it as an offering. What we have is nothing in comparison to you. We see also that it's all the nations. It's a reminder from Revelation 7. We're told great multitude which no one could number from every nation. All the tribes, peoples and languages will gather around God's throne to worship him. So the, the primary, I, I don't know what all we'll do in heaven. I've heard lots of act, ideas and thoughts. I, I don't know. One thing I know we will do. And one thing I think will be the primary focus of what we do. It will be worship the Lamb. The one who has redeemed us. The one who has shed his blood and made us kings and priests. The one who has brought us to this place. He will be the focus. And it will be a time of, of worshiping him. And honoring him throughout eternity. One of the things I thought about with this, though, it reminded me of a quote I heard years ago by John Piper. And Piper said that heaven is not for people who fear hell. Heaven is for people who love God. That makes sense in light of this passage. Right? If someone doesn't desire to live for the glory of God, if someone has no desire to worship the Son of God, well, heaven wouldn't be all that heavenly for them, would it? Heaven will be filled with God's presence and heaven will be filled with worship of the Son of God. And I think this idea of heaven being for people who love God and not people who fear hell is likely part of the reason we find verse 8 and verse 27. Right? For the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars have their part. Or their part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall come into it, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. The reality is everyone won't be in heaven. We're given a list of people who won't, and then one overall arching list of who will. Just quickly to summarize who won't. The cowardly. It's those who fear man more than God. Jesus warned us not to fear those who could only kill the body, but fear the God who could kill the body and the soul in hell. The fear of man keeps us from doing the will of God. The fear of man will always be a snare to us. The problem of the fear of man keeping us from doing the will of God is that the cowardly have not worshipped Jesus in this life, and so they will not be with Jesus in the next life. The unbelieving. The unbelieving are those who do not believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Those who reject Jesus and His death upon the cross for their sins. But this would also include those who profess faith in Jesus 
with their mouths, but live hypocritical or inconsistent lives and show by their sinful behavior they do not know God. The Apostle Paul warns us in Titus 1.6 about people who profess to know God with their mouths, but deny Him with their lives. These are the ones Jesus said He would tell them to depart from Me because I never knew you. The abominable. The abominable are those who are more like the world. They are like Jesus. Their desires are more for sin and the things of the world than they are for the things of God. Their priorities are more of the world than they are of God. They, they just generally live lives characterized by the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of eyes than they are by love and devotion to Jesus. Murderers. Those who kill take the lives of others. But if we take Jesus' words and the Sermon on the Mount into account, it would also be those who are filled with anger, those who are filled with hate, and those who despise others. The sexually immoral be those who reject God's standard for sexuality and embrace the world. Again, this, this is huge for us to get. The world is constantly telling us and our children God's standards for sexuality are outdated. They must be changed. But those who embrace that mindset are part of those who will not be in part of the kingdom of heaven. Sorcerers. Uh, one of my commentaries said those who engage in astrology, witchcraft, devil worship, spiritism, seances, palm reading, fortune telling, and all other forms of false beliefs that claim to reveal and control one's fate, life, and destiny. Idolaters. Those who worship idols. This would include man-made idols as well as those conceived in one's mind. So it's not just they bow before an idol of Baal, but they create a God in their own mind. Say, this is what Yahweh is like, but I don't like Yahweh being like that. I'm going to take this out and I'll put more of that in there to fill the hole. And, and there's my God. They've created an idol in their mind. And they have not worshipped God in this life, so they will not be with God in the next. And those who lie. Just not truthful. Their lives are constant and continual lives. The point is, those who live like this now don't worship Jesus now. And then the further point is, those who don't worship Jesus now won't worship Jesus then because they won't be in heaven where Jesus is. The only people who will be in heaven are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who have been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. Those whose names are written there. They will worship Jesus now. And then they will be in heaven and they will worship Jesus then. The joys of heaven erase the pain of earth. Because in heaven we'll experience the joy of worshiping Jesus. Now, the question I want to leave us with. is: What are your thoughts about these joys. Do thinking about do thoughts of these joys bring you joy? I mean, if you think about the eternal perfection of heaven, God's presence and glory, worshiping Jesus, do you think about that as like that's forever and just be like, oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. If you're born again, and you're a disciple of Jesus. It should. But if you find no joy in the eternal perfection of heaven. You find no real joy in the thought of being in God's presence and seeing his glory. And you find no joy in the thought of eternally worshiping Jesus. 
you have to ask yourself, why? Why doesn't the thought of being with Jesus forever make me joyous? Why doesn't the thought of seeing the full glory of God give me joy? Surely the, we would say the reason it doesn't give me joy is probably because I'm not born again. Probably I don't know Jesus now, so the thought of being with him then doesn't really stir anything within me. Surely I, I don't experience his presence now, so I don't long for it then. I don't care for his glory now, so I, I won't care for it then. If this is you, if you find no joy in the thought of heaven, the God's glory and presence and eternally worshiping Jesus, I would say your great need today is to be born again. To turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and be saved. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Repentance starts by recognizing God is right and we're wrong. God is right about our sin. We have sinned. God is right about our sin. Our sin is serious. God is right about our sin as it makes us guilty in the courts of heaven. God is right about our sin because then it prevents us from being righteous or good. God is right about our sin. It keeps us out of heaven. And then repentance Leads us to turn to God from our sin, seeking forgiveness based upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the turning is critical. Think of it as renouncing. I renounce my former way of life to embrace a new way of life. I, I, I renounce a life of self centeredness and selfishness and sin to embrace a life of sacrificially living for Jesus. Or, or, or think about it in just changing directions. Right? I'm walking this way. This is my life. The cross is back there. And now my mind has changed. And I realize I've been wrong all this time. He's been right all this time. And I want what He offers. I can't keep going in this direction. Walking straight to the back will not lead me to the cross. And so I, I repent. I turn. Because I believe what He has is better than what's down there. And I begin going toward Him. This repentance is, it is motivated by our faith, our belief. But belief isn't meant in a general way. It's not enough to believe there, there is a God out there somewhere. People will not, there will be people who are not in heaven who believe in God. It, it's not enough to believe that Jesus existed and was real. There'll be people who are not in heaven who believe Jesus was real. What we believe about Jesus is very narrow, very specific. We believe in his life. It was perfect. His death. It was in our place. His resurrection. It actually happened. And in believing this, we believe the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the only merit for salvation we have. We acknowledge there are no good works I can do to earn my salvation or help in my salvation. I, I am saved solely on the basis of what Jesus has done. 
All I added to my salvation was the sin that made me condemned and made salvation necessary. We cannot hold on to self-righteousness and the cross at the same time. We cannot hold on to self-reliance and self-sufficiency and the cross at the same time. We must let go of one in order to grab on to the other. I, I think I told this story a few weeks ago, but I heard a story about a man who was just after the Civil War and he was in the South and so he was taking his gold to go to England to invest it over there because of all the things happening in the South. And he had all of his family, they were wealthy, all of his family's treasure in a, in a chest filled with gold. And the boat sank. And he had his chest and he was swimming and holding it up. And the people in the lifeboat, they were telling him, there's not room for your chest, it's too heavy, it'll sink us. You're, you're, you're going to have to let go of the chest and let us lift you up into the boat to save you. And he, and he wouldn't do it. And so he, he drowned holding on to his gold because he feared to lose it. But in the end, he lost it anyway. He lost everything. That's sort of how salvation is. We're sinking apart from Jesus. Our sin is in a chest and we probably treasure it. Our self-righteousness is in that chest and, and we probably treasure it. Our self-sufficiency is in that chest and we probably treasure it. I can do it. And Jesus is walking on the water and He's saying, let go of that and take my hand. And the choice will be ours. If we hold the chest of our treasures, we will die. Or we have to let go of the chest of our treasures and grab onto the hand of Jesus and let Him pull us up. And the choice is ultimately ours to make. Right? You have to make that choice for you. I have to make that choice for me. No one can repent in your place. No one can believe in your place. No one can drop the treasure chest in your place. You must do it. I must do it. And so the question today, it's not are we sinking? We are. The question is, will you drop your chest and grab on to Jesus and let Him lift you up out of the waves? Or will you let that chest of stuff take you down? I want to give us time to respond. And this... This time of response is critical. This isn't the time to pack up your bag. This isn't the time to start getting ready to leave. There are serious things going on in this moment. And so if you're not deciding for Jesus, then just be really still and be really quiet so as not to disturb others who are deciding. I want you to stand, bow your heads. We're not going to have any music, just a time of silence. Us, us and God. Think about the joys of heaven. Do you find joy in those thoughts? 
If not, let that bother you. Ask yourself, why? Why does God's presence not bring me joy? Why does the thought of eternally worshiping Jesus not bring me joy? What's wrong? And let that thought lead you to the reality, the probability you need to be born again. If you're here and you have been born again, you cry out on behalf of others. You praise your God for what's waiting for you. But in this time, let's seek the Lord as he is seeking us. If you need to receive Jesus, you need to repent and believe, you can come forward. I would be glad to pray with you. Or you can pray where you are. The most important thing is that in this moment you cry out to Jesus. You can cry out something as simple as, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If that is a repentant prayer and a faith-filled prayer, the Lord Jesus will save you. You can come to the altars or you can pray where you are. Just do business with God at this time.